part four in coming to Christ, we started out this series being concerned with talking about how we evangelize. But not only that, when we evangelize people, we talked about after we give them all this information about the different aspects of, of the three parts that we're going through, in the end, what do they do with that? How do they actually approach Christ, the one that is the remedy, which we're going to be talking about tonight? That's what started this issue. And as we talked about the introduction to this, the introductory message, we dealt with what to say and what not to say when we're dealing with the gospel. We talked about uh, not changing the message. We talked about not compromising the message. We talked about not adding stuff to the message to make the message void, to make the message not work, because that can be done. You add lies to the message, and the message is it's canceled out. God will not use it, because God only uses the truth. We talked about getting ourselves out of the way. We preach, uh, it says in 1 Corinthians that we preach not ourselves, we preach Christ. So we, we take ourselves out of the way. We have nothing to do with the gospel in reference to the gospel being pinpointed down to the personal work of Christ. We have nothing to do with that. The gospel was performed by Christ before we were born. We don't add to it, contribute to it, or help it out. We don't preach ourselves. We don't add human philosophy. We don't add wisdom of words, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. We preach the clear, simple truth about the personal work of Christ, just the very record that he tells us in the scripture about what the gospel is. And then we talked about what would be the key ingredients of the gospel, the things that you deliver to people that you care about, your friend, family, relatives, co-workers, acquaintances, just those that you want to be saved, those you're commanded to preach the gospel to. And we started out with talking about who God is and what that God requires. And just to sum it up, this God, since he is absolutely holy, righteous, just, and perfect, because he's faithful to himself, he requires absolute perfection all the time. Absolute perfection. He will not compromise on that. He will not lower that standard. To stand in his presence, you have to be absolutely perfect. The next message dealt with who man is and how that man cannot meet those requirements. Very easy to see. That was last week. We spent, the, we spent a lot of time talking about how man breaks the law, how man was born in sin, how there is no hope by the work and the will of man to save himself or even to aid in saving himself. Man is utterly and totally corrupt and morally bankrupt. There is no remedy in man or even a portion of man trying to help himself. He's dead in trespasses and sins. He is that he is declared judicially dead, condemned and guilty under the law. Which, which means he's born under the curse of the law. So man is in a fix where he needs a remedy to get out of this problem. And we're going to talk about that remedy tonight, that Christ is the only remedy for justification and reconciliation with this holy God that demands perfection. Bill read some good verses. If I forget to get to it later, I want to remember several times to talk about how that Christ is a savior to the uttermost. That's probably the theme of this message, that he is the only single, solitary, exclusive savior, and he saves to the uttermost. Now, we've already easily proven the need for a mediator. Now, if you talk about God and what he demands, if you talk about man, how he can't meet those demands, it's obviously that there is a need in the middle 
to bridge the gap between this holy God and sinners. So there is a need for a mediator or a go-between, in other words, to bring these two parties together, to reconcile them together. We had talked about man's natural self-righteousness, how that he naturally knows because of his conscience that he has broken the law. And what does he do without the gospel? Being ignorant of the gospel, he is stirred up to go about to establish a righteousness of his own because he is afraid of the wrath of God. And he thinks that he can do something, great or small, to bring himself to God. That's man's nature. That's man's natural religious thinking, and it's his worst enemy. Satan doesn't really have much of a problem convincing him of those things. Actually, man, by his own wicked heart, will think of those things even without Satan putting them in his mind. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says this, For God is one, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, we cannot be like the ecumenical movement, which that's a movement that wants to accumulate all religions, have all religions coexist as being legitimate, as being legitimate ways to God. We can't enter into that idea and say, there are many ways to God. You go your way, I'll go my way, we'll all get there, we just go different paths. That is something in the past uh, 15 years or so that Billy Graham has gravitated towards. He, uh, in an interview, famous interview, you can see it on YouTube with uh, Robert Shuler. Uh, Robert Shuler asked him about his views of other ways of salvation. And he talked about a broader mercy, how that God will save people, being ignorant of the gospel, being ignorant of Christ. And he talked about those people in other lands, and he named even Buddhists and these different people that have a certain amount of light, and God saves them with that light being ignorant of Christ, who is the light, the only light. And so we cannot take that attitude that there are other ways. We know that Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And that is a message that is a very hated message. And if you push that, you'll be persecuted. The scripture promises that. Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, And the word, speaking of the word Christ. Now, remember the first few verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. Everything was made by this Word, who was it's Christ, in other words. And how do we know it's Christ? It's capital W. Verse 14, I'm getting ready to quote it, kind of spills the beans on it. It says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word of God, Christ Jesus the Lord, the eternal word of God took on flesh and he is the only one appointed by God to perform this gospel. Verse 18, just a few verses down, it says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Well, that seems like a no brainer, doesn't it? The word declares him, the living word of God declares the Father. That's his job. That is his office as prophet to declare the Father. Who else is going to, anyway? Christ Jesus, the Lord, who is the Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has the qualifications to declare who the Father is. 
Now, if you are in Matthew chapter 26, now go ahead and turn there. Let's look at verse 39. Let's start talking about the performance of Christ on earth as he does the work. We're going to go back here in a little bit and talk about the virgin birth and things like that. But I want to get to this nitty gritty here about how that Christ is the only way, how that he's appointed by the Father, he does the Father's will, and so on. Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and he prayed, saying, O oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now he's referring to the cup of wrath, the cup of death, what he was going to have to go through on the cross. And he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples. He found them asleep. And he said, Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and he prayed, My father, if this cup may not pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, and their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again, and he prayed the third time, saying the same word. So the idea here is that there's only one way. There's only one person qualified, and in this activity of saving sinners, there is only one way to do it, and it's by the death of the cross. That's the will of the Father. That was in the covenant, and uh, this weight of sin is finally bearing down on Christ. His hour has come. It is time for him to take on sin and face the wrath of the Father. It says in, you don't have to turn there, you're taking notes, you may write this down. In John 18, 11, it says, Then Jesus said to Peter, Put up your sword into your sheath. Remember what happened? They came to get Christ. Peter took up the sword. He cut the dude's ear off. He says, Put away your sword. He says, This cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? It's connected to what we just read. Talking about that cup. That cup can't pass from him. He has to drink it. So at this time, he's got set in his mind that this is what has to be done. And he's scolding Peter and uh, talking to the others like, this, is, this has to be done. This is the way that it's going to work. I have to drink this cup. Now, we, we talk about um, others who don't know the way of salvation, who are deceived, and they think they know of salvation. They are religious. We know about the fellow in Matthew chapter 7, and in verse 21, he uh, bragged about his works. He thought he could get in by something that he did. And it says in verse 21, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, we're talking about Christ being the only remedy. We're talking about Christ being the spokesman for the Father, being the living word of God, telling people, what the will of the Father is because he is the prophet of God. And throughout his ministry, he continually presses, I'm the guy and there's one way. I'm the guy that's going to die this death. My hour's not yet come. And everything was shoved to the very end. When his hour came, he mounted on the cross and the Father poured out his wrath on him. Now let's look at John chapter 6 to get into some more detail about what is the will of the Father and what are the... What are the fruits of that? What will that result in? John chapter 6 and verse 37. We started out our uh, introduction with um, John 6, 37. And it says, 
All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he who comes to me I will no wise cast out. Here again, the Father's involved. Now, in this message, because Christ is a mediator, I tried to get verses that deal with both him and the Father at the same time, talking about salvation. Because the Father is divinely involved in salvation. He appoints Christ. He sends Christ. He gives Christ authority. Christ goes down, and while he is on earth in his ministry, he talks about he got his doctrine from the Father. He's here to do the will of the Father. He explains out the only will of the Father because of the Father's essential attributes that we have mentioned already, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his faithfulness, and all the others, that there is only one way that fits his character attributes, and it is this way that where sin must be paid for by me, the only qualified mediator, and the only way that sin is prayed for is the way that I'm going to do it by the death of the cross. Allowing God to be both a just God and a Savior as a result. Now, he says all that the Father gives me. Now, we know the Father is sovereign. And before the foundation of the world, we see in many places where he chose a people. He gave them to Christ and he appointed Christ to be their mediator, their representative, their substitute. They're everything. So... Those that the Father gave him, it's a sure thing. They're going to come to him. Now, that's what the series is about, coming to Christ. Now, that's just not two statements, and that's it. Think this thing through. This thing has a lot of missing points in between that are in a bunch of other scriptures that we always talk about. There's, there are some follow-through that happens. God just doesn't choose somebody, and they magically come to to Christ, to the Father, and that's it. I mean, there's some stuff in between there. We'll be talking about that. And it says, the ones that come to me, I'm not going to cast them out under any circumstance. They, they are eternally secure. They will be preserved. Verse 38, for I came, not down, from, I came down from heaven not to do uh, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's redundant about that. He said that in so many different places. And this is the will of the Father that sent me, that all of which he has given me, these people that were chosen, I should lose none of them, but raise it up, raise them up again in the last day. They're going to be secure. He just redundant that he, of what he said in verse 37. And he says again, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone who sees the Son. Now, how do you see the Son? We sang a song a little while ago. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. It's referring to having faith to see the light, to see Christ. And when we see Christ, by God-given faith, because we have been given spiritual life to see him, what do we do? We come to Christ. Those are the mechanics of spiritual life and salvation. The drawing and calling of sinners, by and through the gospel, by the power of the word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, opening their eyes to the irresistible grace of Jesus Christ, and they flee to him from the wrath of God. And they're going to have everlasting life. And I'll raise them up again in the last day. He said that three times in like three verses. And we started in chapter 6. And I know he said it before then. And we know he said it in chapter 17. We went through 17. We just wore that out in 17. How that God's sheep are secure. Chapter 10 talks about it too. It's all throughout the scripture. Romans talks about it. Galatians talks about it. Hebrews talks about it. 
Isaiah talks about it. Genesis talks about it. The promises of God to save his people conditioned on Christ are saturated in his word. Verse 41, then the Jews murmured about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And now does this one say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto him, do not murmur with one another. No man can come unto me unless the father who had sent me draw him. And I'll raise him up again in the last day. Here again, we have the father involved. The father seemingly, according to the mouth of Christ, says, I'm involved with this thing. I'm in charge of this thing. This is the way this works. I pick the people. I give them to Christ. Christ does the work. The people are drawn. The Father who sent me draw him. Of course, we know that is done by the appointment of the Spirit of God. We know that is done by the appointment of the gospel of grace. Those two things are used in combination to draw his people. To, and another word is call. And those people are called out of darkness into the marvelous light to see the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the truth of the gospel. And again, I will raise them up again the last day. Anybody that believes a person can lose their salvation and not be raised up again in the last day just doesn't believe God. He said it like five times within just this little section. Verse 45 is written in the prophets. They shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. Some versions say learn of the Father. It's both, really. You learn from the Father because all knowledge comes from God. All truth is appointed to come through Christ. The Father has appointed Christ to deliver that truth. And if you learn of Christ or of the Father, what do we know about the Father? He demands absolute perfection. We talked about it in a whole message. If you learn of him and decide, wow, I, I, I'm not perfect. I've been shown that I'm not perfect, and he demands perfection. Therefore, we've heard and learned from the Father, and we've seen who he is. Therefore, the only remedy is the one that can deliver us from the wrath of the Father, the one that took on the wrath of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So not everyone hears and learns of the Father or from the Father. But those who do, they come to Christ. Now, back in verse 37, all the Father gives me shall come to me. Now, verse 45 shows that there's no coming to Christ until there's a hearing and learning of the Father. There's the means involved, and we had delivered in the first message, or, or part two after the introduction, of who the Father was, what he demands. So that is a, a, a vital ingredient of the gospel. You can't just... Talk about a God who is haphazard about law and justice because the centerpiece of the gospel is Christ satisfying law and justice. You just can't have a, a haphazard grace, mercy, and peace and truth. There's no such thing. It's precise. It comes from the mouth of the prophet. And he's pretty particular about what he says about all those things, especially when it comes to the character of his father. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who believes on me, Christ speaking, has everlasting life. He's the only one that's seen the Father. He's the only one that can look on the Father and live because he himself is God. He's the God-man. 
So do you see the wisdom of the Father appointing Christ, who is both God and man, now that he has taken on flesh during this time that he's speaking, he is the one that declares to people the will of the Father because he is the prophet of God. The final prophet, by the way. So we see how salvation works here. It's very, very particular. It is in truth. Christ speaks the way salvation works. Look at verse 65 while you're there in chapter 6. And he said, because of this, I said unto you that no man can come unto me unless it were given to him from my father. And here is the father again involved. Since the father's involved, do you think he's going to make sure that the ones that he chose and gave to Christ are going to be the ones that hear and learn of him and come to Christ by faith? I think so. The Father's not out of the picture. The Father and the Son and the Spirit work together in harmony to save this particular people that were chosen and appointed, ordained unto eternal life. They will hear of him and come to him by Christ. John chapter 10. Let's look there a second. Verse 14. Christ speaking here, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know those who are mine. Now, who are those people? Those are those people that the Father gave him. All that the Father gives me, that group of people. He says, he's the shepherd of those sheep. I know who mine are. And I am known by those who are mine. Now, his sheep will know him. What we study in John 17:3, to have eternal life is to know God. So those that know Christ have eternal life. He is the shepherd of them. They were appointed by God to come to Christ. And Christ defends them in reference to being their shepherd, knowing them, and them knowing him. And he's not lying about it. He's the true prophet of God. Even, verse 15, even as the Father knows me, and I also know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, those that I was talking about that I know and they know me. Those are the sheep. I lay down my life for them. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Here he makes a distinction between Jews and Gentiles who there are elect that are one fold. He said, I must lead those. They shall hear my voice and they shall be one flock and uh, I'm one shepherd. So he is the one shepherd of the two folds of the, of the remnant of both Jews and Gentiles brought together. This is spiritual Israel. And this is the work that we read about in Ephesians 2 where he broke down the middle wall, the partition, and he brought these two together, reconciling these Jews and Gentiles together. And they are one fold, one church, in other words. And he says in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. I have received this commandment from my Father. There's the Father again. He's right there. Remember, the authority in John 17. You remember the, the amount of authority we talked about in John 17 that was given to Christ by the Father? And all the other authority to do everything else, to create, 
to sustain, to be the shepherd, to speak for God, to speak the will of God, to be the prophet, in other words, to be the priest. He was appointed a priest. We read in Hebrews in chapter 5, it talks about you just don't self-appoint yourself to be a priest. You're appointed by somebody else. Well, the Father appointed Christ to be the high priest, the, the final and only high priest. So there's all this authority given to Christ. And he says, in this, in specifically here in verse 18, it's, it's specifically in reference to laying down his life, which is the key that unlocks the door to reconciliation for his people. It's taking that cup of wrath and drinking it dry. So he was anointed. He was sent. He was given all authority by his father, and he came to do the will of his father. So I just want to kind of just rush through some things real fast about stuff we always talk about while we're here. And I just want to spit them out real quick about, about what Christ has done. Qualifications of his person, who he was. We'd already said he was God. We quoted uh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus Christ later on verse 14, the word became flesh. Talking about Christ. So he was God. He is God. He's, he was the eternal son of God even before that. He was the eternal son of God. He was, he was spirit. He is the great and ever-present I am, the creator of the world who sustains, creates and sustains everything by the word of his power. And Christ has the same essence and character as far as his attributes are concerned, being equal with the Father in his deity and divine nature. So he is God. He is man. We had already quoted that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was a real man. He was a male. He had a human body and a soul. He had to do this in order to be a suitable sacrifice. He was made in such a way that he did not have even the potential to sin because he was God and his flesh was sinless flesh. He didn't have that inherited depraved nature because he did not come through Adam. He was born of a virgin and that's the next point in his incarnation or him taking on flesh in Matthew 1 23 it says behold a virgin shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is interpreted God with us so Jesus Christ is God in the flesh he has no sin he has no even potential to sin doesn't matter how many times Satan thinks he can tempt Christ or, or whatever he, he cannot sin he can't it's not that he won't he can't. It's not in his nature. It's an impossibility. So God sent his seed and he planted it in the womb of a virgin to bypass the sin nature of Adam. So the eternal son of God, he took on union with human flesh and he took on a body. And his divine being and his humanity were brought together. Two natures in one person. This was prepared by the Father, by the seed, brought to the Virgin, by the Spirit. So this was the unique God-man. Two distinct natures. Nobody else has two natures. He was 100% man and 100% God at the same time. He didn't stop being God when he took on flesh. And when he, he was no less man than he was any less God. He was man and God at the same time. So this is something that had to be done in order to perform this work of salvation. Now, what did he do to perform this perfect work? 
Well, he was appointed by God the Father to be the representative and head and substitute of these people to whom the Father gave to Christ. We read in Romans 5, it talks about the two federal heads, Adam and Christ. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Those that were in Adam are condemned. Those that are in Christ are justified. You can read that in verses 12 through 21. Very Probably the clearest section in the whole Bible about that doctrine of representation. So the gospel is rooted in the purpose and the love of God in Christ. And the purpose of God, it's not hypothetical. It's not potential. It's not haphazardly done. His will, his purpose, his plan, his decree, and his execution of it is precise. It's particular and always without fail is completely successful and effectual. So the purpose of God the Father is to elect in Christ, Christ to be those represented, Christ to be the representative of those people, and to take on all the responsibility, shoulder all the responsibility of saving them by the work that he does as their personal representative. Now, it's very, very important to remember that this means the merit of the life and death of Christ alone is the only saving difference between heaven and hell. You can spit out words about salvation, about God, about Christ, about grace, about mercy all day. But if you don't talk about the particularity of the fact that the difference between eternal life and eternal death is the fact that God sent Christ to save his people by himself without their help without any conditions being met on their part, we know that any conditions on their part is false religion. That's what false religion is, just very simply. It's salvation conditioned on the sinner. So this is to say his atonement, his death, his redemption is effectual by itself. It is what does the same, saving. His blood and his righteousness automatically excludes everything else as the ground to justification and acceptance to God. So as a representative and a substitute, he was in union with these people. The Father get, chose a people, gave them to Christ, and when Christ was on the cross, the Father made it so that Christ was in union with these people. We read verses like uh, Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I was, cru I was crucified with Christ. We read in Romans 6 about how that the old man was crucified with Christ. So God took our old man, placed our old man in Christ, poured out his wrath on Christ and the old man while Christ was on the cross. And sin was taken away, was put away. And the old man that God hated, by the way, was killed. And what's left on the other side of that? The new man, the new creature who is one that has been justified by God alone. So when he died, we died. When he was buried, was buried. When he rose, we rose. And when he was exalted, that's where we're at too, because he represents us. When God sees us, he doesn't see the old man that he killed. He sees the new man in Christ. He sees Christ himself. Christ's righteousness is our acceptance to God. We are, as it says, accepted in the beloved. Very 
very elementary idea that substitution means he died in the place of or in the stead of. Very basic idea that, that the doctrine of universal atonement takes and destroys. Destroys that basic idea and, and actually ruins the definition of substitution. It's a substitution that doesn't substitute, which means it's a redemption that doesn't redeem. It's a reconciliation that doesn't reconcile. It's a propitiation that doesn't propitiate. It just Universal atonement destroys the dictionary, in other words. It destroys the truth of what words mean, and it mocks the word of God because it requires conditions on the sinner, and it shows Christ didn't do enough. we got to finish the work. So Christ had to do these things to be considered the only mediator between God and man. And this is vital for his lordship and his kingdom to be seen in his work of high priest. The work of receiving sin imputed. Now, we're familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, Christ knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's this idea, doctrine, that uh, God had purpose to use to save his people and his wisdom that we could have never come up with in this arena of substitution and representation. And what God has done in his wisdom and knowledge, he has taken the sin of his people that he chose and he legally transferred it from their account to the account of Christ while he was on the cross. And Christ legally owned that sin. He took on that sin and he was accountable for it. And this activity of imputation or a transfer, legal transfer, or a reckoning to or a charging to the account of Christ, this sin, it was so effectual that the Father now must declare Christ to be the owner of that sin because he is, because he took it on. And so much so that now the Father looks upon Christ as being guilty of that sin, the sin of someone else, and must be punished for that sin. And that's what took place. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for the sin of the people of God. And in turn, the righteousness of Christ will be imputed or charged to or reckoned to, or transferred to their account, and they will have his righteousness. Again, false religion destroys the idea, makes it hypothetical, potential, based on future and further conditions on the sinner. But this imputation was a real historical act that took place by God. It was not pretend. It took place in history. And it resulted in the very death of Christ. And then he said, it is finished. And the work was complete. The work was accepted, of course, and we know that um, he was resurrected as a result. Now, we uh, mentioned earlier the word propitiation. We know in Romans 3.25 it says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. The word propitiation refers to Christ satisfying law and justice on the behalf of his people. He took on wrath. Remember, we read, if this talking about that cup, if this cup can pass from me, Father, but your will be done. That's that cup of wrath, of taking on 
the wrath of God because of that sin that was imputed to him, he became and was the propitiation that turned the wrath of God away by absorbing the wrath, satisfying the wrath of God in reference to his uh, law and justice. And he did it in a perfect way. And this is where I believe the centerpiece of the glory of God is here where all his character attributes are magnified. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. This was the time, Isaiah 53.10, that's talking about how that Christ's propitiation and it displayed the glory of God here. The work of propitiation was effectual. And it resulted in what? Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. So again, the Father. The Father keeps popping up. He was directly involved. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. How? By having a hand in the wrath Pouring his wrath out on his son. And Christ making peace by the blood of his cross. As it says in Colossians 1.20. So he reconciled or brought together these two parties. That were enemies with one another. God and man. God who demands perfection. And man who doesn't have any perfection at all. He brought them together by his own perfection. And his own work. In putting away sin and giving righteousness to these people. So he reconciled. He redeemed. Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. The payment was the shedding of the blood. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So we know that God demanded absolute perfection. So here Christ is, the glory of God, perfect man, perfect God, did the work of salvation, shed his perfect blood, his merit, in other words, to cover sin, to take away sin, and to give righteousness. So the payment was fulfilled, paid in full, by Christ himself. He was the only one re uh, required to make the payment because he was the only one that was the suitable sacrifice. Now, other people can try to make payments. doesn't matter. They can't. God knows it. The Father doesn't ask people to make a payment. He knows better. And by the way, Christ made the payment to the Father, not to anybody else. He didn't make the payment to Satan. Some people have that idea that he made a payment to Satan. The Father would not require that. The Father required the payment to him for the release of these people. The work of justification. Romans 5, 9, much more there being justified by his blood. So the whole work of Christ resulted in a justification of his people, Christ being this mediator of the everlasting covenant. He brought in and established an everlasting righteousness, which he imputed to his people, and they are accepted by the Father on that very ground and basis. This is the work of justification. It had to do with Christ being involved in the law, keeping the law, being born under the law, keeping the law, dying for the penalty of the broken law. And he succeeded in that. So he victoriously secured their salvation and justification by fulfilling the perfect will of God completely and fully and he finished the work. And he answered all the demands for their justification. That law before that condemned us 
Now is that same law that says you're righteous. And that's because of what Christ did. Now, having said, spitting out those few things real quickly concerning the work of Christ, and I know um, we've talked about those things for the past 13 or 14 years here and there a lot, and I didn't want to be disrespectful by cramming them in in 10 minutes, but having said that, and I think most of us are familiar with that, when you preach the gospel to people, you bring these particulars out, and you press on them the utter foolishness and the utter vanity of them trying to get to God some other way besides Christ. I mean, we had, we had talked about how that people think that they come to God by their free will when we know, we know the will of man has been damaged since the fall. And we know that Adam had a will that was stronger than us because he had a will that was before sin. And now we have man that's born with a damaged will thinking in a deceitful way that he's going to come to God by his will somehow. We talked about them thinking they can keep the law, and, if, and then if they're convinced that they can't, they look to lower laws, whether it be other commands of God, baptism, the Lord's Supper, or doing forgiving people so you can be forgiven, and all the things that we name that people think that they can do to win God's favor. And we saw the utter ridiculous notion that man, he just can't do it. And he still thinks he can because there's still always this idea that he thinks that he has something that he can offer to God. Even if it's God looking at him and say, you know, you're so pitiful. I just see your sincerity and that's good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. God is too holy. He demands a perfect sacrifice for his wrath to be released, to be removed. So we press on people. Remember how we talked about what religion does. Religion doesn't go far enough with the perfection of God. It doesn't go far enough with the failure of man. And automatically, as a result, it uh, just drops the ball when it comes to Christ. Because they preach a different Christ. A Christ that doesn't meet the demands of the Father. They don't even know the demands of the Father, much less preach a Christ that meets the demands of the Father. So we could go on and on and on about Christ being the remedy. You have to press these things to people. Don't give them a way out. Push them in a corner to where they are shut up to the mercy of God and that there is only one exclusive way, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you talk about Christ, make sure you use words like by himself, alone. Talk about what salvation is not also. It's not by works. It's not by grace plus works. It's not by anything you do. It's not by conditions. And then again, it'll bring us back to the introductory thought to where people will say, okay, okay. So what do I do? I mean, isn't that what we thought of at the beginning? You hear about these doctrines. You hear about the truth of who God is. You hear about the truth of who man is. And you hear about who the truth of Christ is. And people say, okay, so... I've got these doctrines shoved in my head. Now, what do I do? Well, do you fear coming to this God outside of Christ? Do you see yourself 
as a type of sinner that the scripture describes you as to where you have no hope in yourself. You are excluded of any part of salvation and you can't do anything. You can't fulfill a condition. You can't keep a law. You can't say a prayer. You can't get in water and fix it. You can't be sincere. Just no matter, you can't establish any part of the ground of righteousness. Do you see that? Do you see that you fit this group that is called sinners for whom Christ came for? That's all he came for. He didn't come for those that don't need a physician. He came for those that need a physician. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Do you want that? Believe that. And you can't make people believe. You can just say, well, just believe that. Embrace that. Put all your eggs in one basket. This is if Christ, if this Christ, who bridges a gap between the perfect God and the perfect scenario of the maximum failure of man, this perfect Christ, if he can't fill that gap, then he's not worth trusting. But if he if he is the only way, then I gotta put all my eggs in that basket. I gotta trust him with all the grace that God can give me to trust him. I'm falling at his feet. He's my only hope. I gotta go with this person. Right here. Or I'm done. You gotta press people to that point. And you can't get inside their head and make them do it. The Holy Spirit, if they're his, he'll call and draw. And no they and they can't even stop it. <laughs> Anybody got a song?